Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number nine on December 2nd, 2016, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in St. Louis, Missouri. Thanks for joining us. Today's main topic is feast, famine, and the distribution of food. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup, research updates, an event calendar, and our DIY feature. This week, we have a guest contributor, Fred Sutherland, who wrote about low-tech fire starting option, specifically flint and steel. So we'll get into that a little bit later. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at low underscore techno. You can like us on Facebook and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. This week, we're continuing to talk about food. Our last podcast focused on meat, and we'll look at other types of food in the coming weeks, but I wanted to focus on the abundance and distribution of food this week as we wrap up the Thanksgiving season here in America and harvest season throughout the Northern Hemisphere. So today, I want to start with a quotation. Quote, My grandmother was not a highly educated woman, but she told me as a child to quit feeding stray animals. You know why? Because they breed. You're facilitating the problem if you give an animal or a person ample food supply. They'll reproduce, especially ones that don't think too much further than that. And so what you've got to do is you've got to curtail that type of behavior. They don't know any better. And this is a quotation from Andrew Bauer in 2010. He was at the time South Carolina's lieutenant governor. And this sentiment isn't too dissimilar from what Paul Ryan said in 2012 that, quote, we don't want to turn the safety net into a hammock that lulls the able-bodied people to lives of dependency and complacency that drains them of their will and their incentive to make the most of their lives, end quote. Again, that's Paul Ryan, who's a pretty prominent politician as the Speaker of the House. These ideas have been bandied about since the late 1700s by politicians who push this idea in the face of data disproving their thesis time and time again. So today what we're going to be talking about is not only the distribution of food and the Irish potato famine, but the ideas behind these poor relief and poor welfare ideas and systems. We're going to talk about are they really fair characterization? Uh, Spoiler alert, I don't think they are. So let's go back to the beginning. Uh, Today, most of what I'm talking about comes out of Eric B. Ross's book, The Malthus Factor, Poverty, Politics, and Population in Capitalist Development from Zed Books. This is out in 1998, but the argument is still sound. We do need to talk about Thomas Malthus and his ideas about population, and I've mentioned him a couple of times in the podcast and on the blog before, but before that, we should really set the political and economic stage of the late 1700s in England. The French Revolution was scaring the bejesus out of the aristocracy across Europe. Basically, the peasants have revolted and cut off the head of the aristocracy, literally. On the economic front, industrialization was about to transform the world as we know it. About two centuries before this time, enclosure laws began to privatize common lands across England. Up until this time, poor people could eke out a living by using these commons to support themselves by farming, grazing livestock, and foraging. These enclosure laws allowed the aristocracy to carve up these lands into private holdings, which were then rented back to the landless to work as tenant farmers. Tenants who failed to pay rent could no longer fall back on the commons, and they sought relief under the new poor law system. 
poor laws provided relief on the parish level. It was thought that the parishes would know best because they were local to the population. And a lot of the parish relief was the responsibility of the local aristocracy, who were loath to support the growing ranks of poor. By the late 1700s, leading politicians were calling for reform of the poor laws. Unless the poor were hungry, they'd say, they'd have no incentive to work. Does that sound familiar? The Paul Ryan quote from earlier basically said the same thing. If the poor are given everything, why would they work? They'll be lazy. The idea of welfare queens didn't really originate in the 1990s. The poor have been maligned and called lazy for hundreds of years. Industrialization seemed to provide an answer for these growing ranks of poor. They could move to cities, they could work in factories and make a living that way. But the large towns and poor sanitation led to disease and hardship and cramped tenements. Not to mention the fact that 40% of factory labor in the 1830s was done by children. The Corn Laws of the 1700s, which taxed foreign grain, caused grain and bread prices to rise in England, and this further impoverished the working poor as bread was the staple of their diet. Again, any assistance given to the poor was seen as making the situation worse. If the poor were too comfortable, they'd have more children that they couldn't support. At least that was the logic. So these new poor laws that were created established workhouses. And these workhouses were meant to be worse than prisons. This drove the destitute to take any job rather than end up in the poorhouse. The ideas of Thomas Malthus became particularly popular at this time. And I want to thank Glenn Stone at Wash U in St. Louis for his lectures and readings on this topic where I've gleaned a lot of this following information. You can also find out more about famine and Malthus in my recent book, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Failed, which you can find on Rutledge.com and Amazon. And I'm going to read you a quick summary of Malthus and his importance from that book. So the following is, is a quote. Just before the Industrial Revolution, in 1766 to be exact, Thomas Robert Malthus was born into a wealthy English family. Malthus, like others in his social class, was highly educated. He graduated with a degree in mathematics in 1791 from the University of Cambridge. He took an easy job as the curate of Oakwood Chapel in Surrey. During his tenure, he came into contact with many peasants as he was responsible for baptisms, marriages, burials, and services. It was during this time that he formulated the ideas that would later become an essay on the principle of population, published in 1798, which would up, he would update this six times over the next 28 years. His argument, in brief, was based on the fact that humans need food to survive and the human sex drive is constant. From these points, he postulated that population increase is exponential, he called it geometrical, while food production only increases in a linear fashion, he called it arithmetical. If, then, food cannot be produced as fast as mouths to eat it, scarcity would occur, leading to famine, war, and disease. Malthus called these, quote-unquote, positive checks, referring to their ability to tamp down an otherwise runaway population. In the second edition, he added, quote-unquote, preventative checks, which were behaviors that slowed down population growth using moral restraint, for example, delayed marriage and sexual abstinence. But even still, he argued that problems associated with too many people and too little food were inevitable. The reason that a seemingly obscure figure from the turn of the 19th century, who self-published a pamphlet on population growth, 
becomes important is that his argument enabled colonial famines in the Industrial Age. Instead of seeing the famines of the last two centuries as problems of distribution, which they were, colonial powers saw the famines as God's way of punishing these immoral, sex-having, overpopulating, poor, uneducated masses in Ireland, India, China, and even England itself. Unfortunately, Malthus was made a professor of history and political economy at the East India Company College, where administrators for the company would be trained. The result of this education was that generations of colonial overlords were indifferent to human suffering because they had learned it was their subjects' own fault for stupidly overpopulating their countries. End quote. So that's, that's the end of the reading from uh, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail? Malthus's theories were quickly put into practice with deadly effect in the British Empire. In fact, the best-known famine in the English-speaking imagination, the Irish potato famine, was a result not of potato disease, but the mismanagement of the Irish colony by administrators trained in Malthusian ideas. So in the popular telling, and the way you know, you've probably heard of the Irish potato famine before, you've heard that the profligate Catholic Irish had too many children and overpopulated their island. When a disease devastated the potato crop, people starved. By the numbers, one million died, and one million moved away from an original population of eight million Irish. This, however, is the story told by the British colonial overlords, and it disguises their misdeeds that directly led to the death of a million people under their watch. You want proof? Let me read from William Corbett, a radical pamphleteer of the mid-1800s. And this is right out of Malthus Factor uh, by Ross. Hundreds of thousands of living hogs Thousands upon thousands of sheep and oxen alive. Thousands upon thousands of barrels of beef, pork, and butter. Thousands upon thousands of sides of bacon. And thousands upon thousands of hams. Shiploads and boats coming daily and hourly from Ireland to feed the west of Scotland. To feed a million people and a half. People in the west riding of Yorkshire and in Lancashire. To feed London and its vicinity. And to fill the country shops in the southern counties of England. We beheld this. While famine raged in Ireland amongst the raisers of this very food. At the height of the potato famine, Ireland was exporting hundreds of tons of beef, pork, and grain to England. But let's back up and start the story in 1600s Ireland. The Irish originally, at this time, ate a mixed diet of meat, dairy, and grains, and they exported their surpluses to England, to which they had been bound as a colony after the Tudor conquest at the, at the beginning of the 1600s. Around this time, the potato also made its way from the Andes to Europe. The potato can grow in really terrible soils, and it still produces a large yield of nutritious tubers. In fact, one could actually live on potatoes indefinitely. Well, that, okay, you could live on potatoes indefinitely because they have almost complete nutrition. However, I don't know if one can put up with the psychological monotony of just eating potatoes. Don't get me wrong, I love potatoes, they're delicious, and you can pre prepare them in so many different ways. But imagine just eating potatoes for the rest of your life. It is a little bit of a daunting concept. At any rate, the potato allowed the Irish to treat more of their mixed crops as cash crops, exporting ever more meat and grain to the empire. Ironically, the English mocked the Irish potato as the perfect crop for a country of lazy Catholics, as they called them. And they were probably calling them this through mouthfuls of Irish beef. So the English... I don't know for what reason. Uh, some psychologists might say it was trying to play down their 
subliminal guilt about eating all the Irish food or who knows what. But the Irish were constantly mocked by the English, even though a lot of the English ate Irish food, causing the lack of food in Ireland. In 1845, the bacteria Phytophthora infestans arrived in Europe and turned the potato plants rotten. The Irish tenants, though, owed their landlords beef, ham, and grain, which they duly gave up while starving to death. Let me repeat that. The Irish had obligations to their landlords. They were tenant farmers living on someone else's land, and the deal was they had to turn over their beef, ham, grains, etc. to their landlords as rent, and they could live on the potatoes they raised on more marginal land. Well, when all the potatoes died, they still owed rent, but now they had nothing to eat, even though their rent was largely paid in food. There's a villain in this story, and his name is Charles Trevelyan, who, as it happens, had been Malthus's student at the East India Company College. He was in charge of the Irish relief program, and from the following quotations, you can guess how well he handled it. And this is from page 46 of The Malthus Factor. Trevelyan said that the Irish potato famine was, quote, a direct stroke of an all-wise and all-merciful providence, end quote. So basically he's saying it's God's will that the Irish die like this. He says this in a little less clear language in another quotation, quote, Posterity will trace up to that famine the co commencement of a salutary revolution in the habits of a nation long singularly unfortunate and will acknowledge that on this as on many other occasions, supreme wisdom has adduced permanent good out of transient evil. Again, he's blaming the victim of this famine for their own situation. Following the famine, long-distance transportation further reduced the Irish ability to revive its economy. In fact, in the late 1800s following the famine, it was actually cheaper to buy American ham in Ireland than to buy Irish ham. And I hear you, okay, but that was Ireland 160 years ago. How does that relate to today? And I think it's clear that we're still dealing with Malthus's ideas today. It's clearly present in the development sphere where pro-free market governments have benevolent intentions to quote-unquote improve the lives of people living in underdeveloped nations. And you should know I had quotation marks around development, improve, and underdeveloped in my notes here because anthropologists don't really see it like that. The industrial way of life is one way to live, and it's subjective to say that it's better or worse than other strategies. So saying a culture is underdeveloped implies that it's striving to be like the first world, that it's striving to be a developed country. And that's not necessarily the case, and it may or may not turn out to be better for the people living there. Most development strategies undermine traditional subsistence practices and call them backwards even though these so-called backwards practices have supported people for many generations and they often provide a basic living for much of the population. After development plans and organizations come in and irreversibly change the local economy and society, the industrial countries often pull their support out, trying to let them continue on their own. Almost invariably, the new system fails. The now impoverished people ask those countries that came in and changed their lives for aid, but the response from the colonial and post-colonial powers that sponsored these so-called development projects now blame the victims for their problems, often citing their populations or overpopulations as a driving factor of poverty. So today we see the developing, quote-unquote, world exporting goods and foods while living in material poverty, just like the Irish exported foods during a famine. 
Another place we see Malthusian ideas today is in environmentalist discussions. Now it makes certain logical sense, and I completely see the point, that larger populations, especially those with heavy resource use, will create a greater impact on the environment. I understand that, and I know there are a lot of environmentalists who advocate for a much smaller human population on the Earth to ease our burden on the environment. I understand that. However, the problem is that instead of looking at our current economic model, which assumes infinite resources and making changes to how we run our economies, a lot of people just call for curving population growth. You can't just do one and hope that it will ease the burden on the environment. It's like if your home was on fire and you complain that your house is too big and the fire would be more acceptable if you had a smaller house, right? The house being our population size and the fire being environmental degradation. Therefore, the idea of sustainable development, again, air quotes around that phrase, is a wolf in sheep's clothing as it attempts to address poverty in the non-industrial world without reforming the industrial economy that's the cause of many of these problems. It views degradation as a local issue, and it ignores the external forces that drive that new environmental degradation. It fails to question energy-intensive solutions, and instead calls for fewer people. Finally, I want to reiterate what I mentioned in Podcast 8, the last one on meat, that by eating so much meat, we're actually consuming many more plant calories to satisfy our daily needs. You can hear a full version of that discussion in the last podcast. A recent commercial I saw on TV claimed that we need to grow twice as much food on our existing farmlands in order to feed the population of the earth by 2100. But I think this is false. We're already growing enough food to feed 11 billion people, which is what the UN estimates our population is going to top out at by 2100. Let me repeat that. We're already growing enough food to feed 11 billion people. But you have to understand, much of the corn and soy that we're growing goes to feed animals to provide meat. And a lot of that corn also goes for non-food uses such as fuel and plastics and things like that. So if we were to reduce the amount of meat we eat, remember that it takes seven plant calories to make one meat calorie, we would septuple the amount of plant calories available for us to eat. So feeding the world is not a question of the availability of food. The food is available. It is a question of distribution and the market forces and social forces that drive its distribution. Now let's turn to this week in low-tech news. We have a lot of low-tech news stories on the website and you can find them there under Friday's blog post. Uh, two low-tech news stories I did want to point out. Um, there is a story from Motherboard about swarm electrification in Bangladesh. This is basically the idea that a neighborhood could set up a mini network of solar panels and linked houses. And I think this is a great idea. It's very resilient because you, you're not depending on these long transmission lines that can be down in major storms, things like that. It is probably the electric company's worst nightmare because you could become energy independent a lot quicker if you're working together on the neighborhood or city scale. Another article I want to point out is an idea about uh, new ideas about old buildings where instead of just tearing down an old building we could retrofit them. This probably saves on quite a lot of the materials that are needed to build a brand new building when we have a in many cases perfectly sound building but one that's no longer fashionable or thought to be worth saving. When I lived in Europe I was amazed at the buildings that had been around that I was living in, apartments and things that had been around as long as the United States. 
it's probably worth wondering whether or not you can retrofit rather than tear down and build anew. So those are just two of the stories that I wanted to point out among probably two dozen this week on the website, so check those out. This week's DIY feature comes to us from Fred Sutherland, a friend of mine that I met uh, over 10 years ago when we were both attending Boston University. Fred has worked as a historical interpreter at Fort Snelling in Minnesota, and he has written up a brief tutorial on using flint and steel to start fire with char cloth. The instructions are outlined on the blog from Thursday, so I'm not going to completely reiterate them here, but in short, a small tin with ventilation holes is filled with cotton or other natural fibers. That's placed on a low flame and the cloth inside turns to very carbon, very easy to light fabric called char cloth. This char cloth is then cut into pieces and used in conjunction with flint and steel where the flint strikes the steel. It shaves a small amount of the steel off of the striker sends a spark down onto the char cloth, which smolders and ignites and is used to light tinder, which is used to light kindling, which is used to light a fire. Check out the blog. It's got great pictures of each of these different things and a great explanation. Thanks for sending that in, Fred. I really appreciate it. Now let's do a quick research updates from what we have going on around the Institute. Well, we are officially packing our bags and moving to Madison over the next month. So my research is going to be a little bit truncated. Uh, the aquaponics system has been sold to a friend of mine. It was a proof of concept system anyways. So we'll be building a new system once we get to Madison and uh, purchase the property that will become the Institute. The mushrooms continue to spread their mycelium through the horse manure substrate. So we're waiting for that to get large enough to spread it into other beds. The deer hides have dried completely when uh, covered with salt and I've just gotten the alum and other things I need to tan them so I'm going to be starting that process over the next few days so I'll have a good update on that next week otherwise things are pretty quiet I'm making a candy board which is basically sugar to help feed the bees over the winter uh, we're coordinating the movement of bees and chickens we've got foster parents for our chickens uh, for the interim while we're uh, completing our move to Madison other than that, things are pretty quiet around the Institute. In the event calendar, we do have three bread workshops coming up this weekend, next weekend, and the weekend after that. We'll have to put a hold on the workshops until we get into our permanent location in Madison, but we'll have more workshops coming up in the near future. The Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Reading Room. Our intro music was Together in the Empty, off the album Creative Commons Album 6 by Dexter Britton. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Share Alike license, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio. And please give us a rating. It helps us boost our audience reach. I'd be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me on soundcloud.com slash lowtechpodcast. You can find more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechnologyinstitute, that's all one word, dot wordpress.com. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at low underscore techno. And also reach me directly 
at lowtechinstitute, again, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and take care.